Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. All right, without further ado, here's Senior Pastor Dan Willis. I'm delighted uh, to be able to speak to you today because this series that I put together has really opened my eyes and helped me to learn some things as well. And that's, isn't that always good? I think that every teacher is still a learner. What do you think? Okay, I wasn't sure. Some of you seem to get it. Uh, Anyway, and the reason I, I say that is because Jude is a difficult book to really expound upon. And some people don't like to do it because it's, it seems to be doom and gloom. But you remember that there's reasons for what it says and why it's there. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jude chapter 1. Of course, there's only one chapter. Scroll down to verse 5. And I want to talk with you this morning in our sermon series, Contending for the Faith, God's Eternal Warnings. Now, we are forever sick and tired of warnings that we get, aren't we? They get tiresome. And, and let, me, let me be practical. How many of you can't stand it when the uh, warning lights go on and the uh, uh, guards go down at a train crossing and there's no train? How many of you have gone around them? Come on. Listen. Listen. <laughs> you have. I know you have. I know that because I've sat behind you in my squad car when you've done it. I know. <laughs> uh, those warnings are there for a reason. How many of you have seen a, 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 a deputy like myself or a law enforcement officer, uh, what we call light them up, turn on your lights, and you see them, but you keep driving? That's a warning to stop, I'm telling you, even if you didn't know it. Now, now I'll tell you something. Uh, when I was a young Marine, and, and I would say even dumb, but it wasn't because of the Marines, it was because I just dumb. And... Uh, and I, I got stationed in Hawaii, my first duty station after I'd spent school in California, boot camp in California. And, uh, uh, you know, of course, in Indiana, you know, we have uh, uh, different types of lights for different types of things. And in, when I was a kid, uh, red lights were all police had, you know, uh, but now uh, because you can see blue better at night than you can red, uh, it's, it's, you know, we'll put, we'll put all three, red, white, and blue. <laughs> and that's not because we're America, but because it's people see differently. And so, uh, you know, so... You, you would have red, but now we have red and blue, and the fire department still has red, um, and, of course, volunteer uh, responders as a volunteer firemen have just blue. And so um, I, of course, grew up on that and thought everybody was like that, which is not true. And so I was cruising along on the Poly Highway uh, in, in Hawaii. Some of you have been there and probably know where that is, and I was cooking right along, and I was going more than 55 miles an hour, although it wasn't terribly fast, but I was speeding, nevertheless. And all of a sudden, this volunteer fireman come up behind me, and I thought, well, there's something for you. You're a volunteer fireman. Blue light flashing, kept on going. Kind of find out in one volunteer fireman. 
rut row. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, if the police in Hawaii just have blue lights, you see. And I suspect that that's true in other places. But, you know, when you grow up in a certain way, you don't realize that, you know, other states and different things are different in different other places. So, you know, but nevertheless, a warning is still a warning, isn't it? Some of them we heed and some of them we don't. I'll tell you, we've got an epidemic on our hands right now. And the governor of Indiana has signed um, some legislation that if you don't stop at a school bus stop where, and the lights are on this flight, you, that, that could be a felony. Yeah, why? Because some children uh, up in Rochester uh, in, or in Fulton County were killed by somebody just plowed through them. So the fact of the matter is, and listen, even in our bus, people refuse to stop. And I look at it this way, whether there's a light arm out there and it's flashing or not, if their kid's getting on and off the bus, shouldn't you stop and slow down? Right. But warnings, they don't even heed them. They just go around. It's unbelievable that we would do that, but we are. And so it stands to reason to me that if we won't heed warnings like that, do you think we heed the warnings of our parents and those in authority above us? I know I didn't, and I know my kids didn't. Because sometimes we have to learn on our own, don't we? And sometimes it's not good when you learn it. But more than that, how do you think we do heeding the warnings from the Word of God? The things that God has said. Well, he's been coming for ages and he ain't come yet. Yeah, but he's going to. And the warning's still the same. And that's what Jude is talking about. So in, in, in the chapter of Jude, in verse 5, listen to what he says. Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but then later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And I want to read this again to you. Uh, not in a paraphrased version like the NIV I just gave you, but in a direct translation such as the New American Standard. And those of you who have uh, a New Revised Standard might see some ser- ser- uh, similarities here. And those of you who have another direct translation as ESV, English Standard Version, will probably read identically. He says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh as exhibited by an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, what does all this mean? I mean, I'm sure some of you are like, that's some awful big words, and I'm not quite grasping all of that. But what I get out of this is people didn't heed the warnings that God gave them. Yes, that's right. But it's not just people. It's any created being who didn't. There's going to be a consequence. Do you understand that? You do understand that, right? So you remember that you desired to write a letter praising the common salvation that all believers share and enjoy together. But the Spirit of God changed his mind and told him, no, don't write that. 
They already know it, and, and even so, others are going to do that as well. But I want you to write something different. I want you to write a different letter. I want you to write a warning to the people based on what my spirit is going to tell you. And so Jude was obedient, and he wrote to all believers for all time that we are to do a couple of things. And one of those things is to contend earnestly for the faith. And last week, we talked at length about this idea, and today we're going to talk more in depth about one of the whys that we have to take this stand. It's important that we understand why, because if you don't know why, you probably won't do it. I remember as a kid, um, until I got tired of being worn out for it, I would ask, when Dad would tell me to do something, and I'd ask him why. And it got to the point where you didn't ask Dad why anymore, you did it. Now, my granddad, his father, was better with it. He wanted me to know why. Because his idea was, if I teach my grandson the whys of what I'm telling him to do, he will likely be better at trying to do it or not do it. And I believe raising children in that way. Now, there are going to be certain times you're going to tell them no and no and because I said so and that's it. Because, they, because why is not good enough, no matter what you tell them. But here's the thing, friends, and there's going to be other times where they don't understand the why. You'll tell them, but it won't make sense to them. Okay? And so you got to just come down and say, well, whether you understand it or not, it's no. Okay? Or you're going to do this, and that's it. That's, that's called being a parent. And those of you who don't have the metal to do that shouldn't be parents. I'm serious. Because there's a difference between a parent and a child. And sometimes I wonder who's who in some families. And we want to know why we have a serious problem in our nation today. It's not, it's not hard for me to see. Anybody with me here? Okay. So... Warnings are warnings, and we need to understand the why, okay? So it comes to us in verse 4, and he says, Certain people have crept in unnoticed. He says these people are ungodly people, which means they're among us here in the church. We already know there's ungodly people outside the church, but he's talking about people in the church. He said ungodly people are in the church. First of all, is that news to anybody today? Don't look around trying to figure out who's ungodly in here. <laughs> well, that just tickled some of them guys back there, didn't it? Well, that's the group that hangs out back there on Wednesday nights, too. I keep a close eye on them, them suckers back there. Okay? So some of you who aren't coming on Wednesday night and can help me with this, you need to be here and sit back there with them. Uh-huh. That's my way of getting to you, see. Now, yeah, <laughs> oh, there's room back there, Burn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But anyway, they're in the church. And here's the thing. They claim to be Christians. Listen, friends, I learned a long time ago. Just because you say you are something doesn't make it so. I remember Fred Sanford. Anybody watch Sanford and Son? Love Sanford and Son. Who has no idea what I'm talking about? They're probably all next door, but some of them might be in here. And they don't want to raise their hand, see? But Sanford and Son, that was a great show. And listen, I remember Fred Sanford was getting help by a guy who's an attorney. And... Uh, he, I don't know what the conversation was, but the guy, says, the guy said, uh, he said, you are an attorney, right? And the guy said, depends on who you ask. He said, well, who, who says you ain't? He says, state of California. <laughs> yeah, he, said, he said, you ask me, I'm an attorney. But who says you ain't? Well, state of California. So, you know, just because somebody says they are doesn't mean they are. And the same is true in Christianity, believe it or not. Now, you and I don't have the right to tell someone that they're not a Christian. God does that. But while we do have the authority and ability, as well as the, 
necessity to do is to tell people, you might say you're a Christian, you might claim one, but your fruits do not line up with what the Bible says a Christian is. That's a fact. We're afraid to do that too. We don't want to do that. Because the first thing they're going to say is, you can't judge me. Wrong answer. I can and I should. I judge whether or not you act like a Christian or not. Now, sometimes they are the Christian and we're not. <laughs> because everybody has a different idea about what being a Christian is, right? I've heard people say, I'm a Christian. I look at them saying, mm, I don't think so. That's up to God, but it doesn't look like it to me. But these were ungodly people, and they were in the church, and they claimed to be a Christian. And oftentimes, they were teachers and leaders in position, and they are today too. They're in positions of authority. Sometimes they're even pastors. I'm telling you, there are pastors out there, ordained ministers, who are leading people astray. And they don't have to speak in straight-up terms of heresy, neither, to be that person. When they compromise the Word of God and tell people it doesn't say what it says, that's heresy, and they're lying. I don't care what they want to believe. God doesn't care what they want to believe. What He says is what counts. Amen? And again, He says they were ungodly people, but they're acting like they were godly. They were typically and still are well-respected. They appeared to be godly, but the Spirit tells us through Jude that they are not godly because they have turned, get this, he says, the grace of God into licentiousness and lewdness. We talked about that last week. Lewdness. Remember I told you licentiousness and lewdness always goes back to some sort of a sexual sin. They turn the grace of God into a lewdness, most likely over some type of sexual sinfulness. Do you understand that? Jude could have used several different words here that equal perversion in different ways, but he, choose, he chooses the one that says lewdness and licentiousness of a sexual nature. There's a reason why he did it, because that's what was happening. Okay? So remember that in your mind. But what it really means here in actuality is that they deny the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ as well as the commands of the two. And Jude further writes that these people were long ago marked for destruction. It's, it's like God knew what they were going to do well before they ever did it, and He knew that they would never change, and they would go to their grave in this capacity. And because they did, they're marked for destruction, the destruction that will come that hasn't come yet. You understand that? Now, people could say, well, that's predestination. It is, but we're going to talk about that. Don't get caught up on that word. I'll try to get to it here in a minute. But He tells His readers, He exhorts His readers to contend earnestly for the faith in verse 4, and he, reduce, and he, he uh, introduces the reason for them to take this stand. Remember, he says, certain people have crept in unnoticed. They were ungodly people. They were guilty of turning the grace of God into lewdness, denying the master. Now, I realize that some people will think that, this is, that God determined they were going to do this. No, he didn't. He knew what they would do, but they decided it. God doesn't step in and change what you're going to do. 
Well, if God knew it, why didn't he warn me? He did. He has. But he will not force you to do the right thing. It's kind of like when you have a child that's 18 years old or older, and they think they've arrived. And so when you warn them and tell them things, you have no authority to make them do it. But the problem might be that you didn't make them do it when you did have that authority. Okay? So now you got a problem. And maybe you did all the right things, and they're still going to be hard-headed and do what they want. You can't make them. All you can do as a parent is stand back and worry like we do. Right? Knowing this isn't going to end well. Now, Jude says that this long-ago marked for destruction actually means destruction. Condemnation is destruction. They're condemned, and they're going to be destroyed. But as Baptist author and scholar Warren Wiersbe correctly states in the Bible Exposition Commentary, Jude did not write that these people were ordained to become apostates as though God were responsible for their sin. They became apostates because they willfully turned away from the truth. You understand? But God did ordain that such people would be judged and condemned. The Bible says so. The Old Testament prophets denounced the false prophets of their day, and both Jesus Christ and his apostles pronounced judgment upon them. So what Wearsby is actually saying is true. Their behavior wasn't ordained, but their punishment sure is. You understand? Now, those that turn from God are not going to escape his righteous condemnation nor his judgment. But you have to notice something. Notice Wearsby says they turned. He does so because that's what Jude indicates happened. They turned, which means what? They were saved at one time and turned. They were believers and turned, became non-believers. Wait a minute. Are you saying that if you say you're a Christian and you say you're a believer, but God says your conduct is, is unbecoming, that you're not really a believer even though you think you are? That's exactly what Wiersbe's trying to say, and he says it because that's what Jude says. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you think. You see, friends, these people who fit this category are those who had some type of conversion, but they perverted the gospel and the commands and standards of God. And they did it to do whatever pleased them. They wanted... God's beautiful grace to be something He never ordained it to be. And there is no way we can read the Scripture and not see that that's, ha that's happened. We don't like to admit it, and sometimes we've gotten involved in it. But truth is truth, and it, it does happen. And to reinforce this truth and point, Jude reminds us in today's scripture of the three examples in which the ungodly did not escape God's condemnation. And there's really no other way to teach this today or preach this today than what I'm going to tell you. I struggle with Jude like other pastors do because we don't want to hear some of these things over and over and over again, and we don't want to hear the consequences. But when you're doing an exhaustive study on it, what, what else do you do? 
if that's what it says, that's what it is. And so as we look at this, he gives us those three examples. What are they? Israel in the wilderness, the angels who sinned, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we're going to look at those three things today. And we're going to do it so that we might be reminded, just as the early Christians were, that Jude references these condemnations so that we'll study them more in depth that we can understand all we can about them. Because, friends, we need to know what's going to happen to people that do this stuff. I think it's because it will compel us to have a greater compassion and more urgency about reaching them. My guess is you probably know somebody personally who is involved in the type of sins that three, three categories of people involve themselves in, in some manner. I know it hurts. I know you don't want to deal with it. I know you don't want to think about it. But friends, if you don't, who will? And if nobody does, what's their destination? And the Bible's clear about that too. Is it really, are people really going to go to hell? That's what he says. And he says, you won't want to see it. How many of you knew that? How many of you didn't know that? How many of you really believe that, some, that, God, that, that hell is just a metaphor and people really aren't going to really go to a place like that? I've talked to Christians who think that. Friends, I'm telling you, it's not true. There is a hell. Well, there's going to be. And people are going to end up there. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Then if you do, then what, where's your urgency? Right? Where's our urgency? Do I need to learn all I can about these things that Jude talks about from the Old Testament? Yes. Why? Because it compels me to be greater in my pursuit of people than I have been. Yeah? Okay? So notice this. You may feel a sense of deja vu as we study it because the Apostle Peter talks about it at length, the same types of things in his second epistle. So why does Jude repeat? Well, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that the Holy Spirit directed it. He changed his mind on what to write, which means that it is a very relevant fact that these two apostles write about are real and present in our church today. This kind of stuff is happening today. It's the living Word of God. It was relevant then. It's relevant now. Yes? Okay? If, if it's relevant now, we ought to stand up and take notice of what he's saying. So if that's true, that we have to look at some differences as well. Peter discusses those destroyed in the flood. Jude doesn't. But the examples mean the same thing. So let's look at what Jude says. First of all, let's take a look at Israel in the wilderness. What actually happened? A well-known event in Israel's history, God saved the nation of Israel by bringing them out of the land of Egypt when they were slaves. You know that story? Okay. Yet despite their being recipients of His wonderful grace and getting out of there, God destroyed those who didn't believe in some manner. It didn't happen right away. It happened when they started to lose heart and began grumbling and not believing in His ability to do exactly what He said He did. In fact, their lack of faith required that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Basically, God saw to, saw to it that none of them who were over the age of 20 when they left Egypt would survive. Well, how do you arrive at those numbers? Well, because the Bible tells us different numbers, and there's been conjecture for years about what they are. Because you weren't counted as an adult until you were over 20, even though you could marry at 11. But anyway, so... Until you're 20, you still, your parents still had 
some kind of control over you. You understand? So when they did a census of people, it was 20 and above. And they figured that those who were below 20, God didn't meet that out to them because they had the opportunity to change. And they weren't held accountable to it. Those 20 and above were. At least that's what most Bible scholars believe. But none of them did make it with the exception of two, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb were the two of the spies that went with the other groups into the land and said, we can take it. Everybody else said, no, we can't. And God said, I'm, I'm sending you, take it. And they all were afraid, said, we can't do it. All they could look at is how big the people were. They looked like giants to them. And Joshua and Caleb said, hey, with God with us, we can surely take it. And God thought, you know, are you kidding me? You think I can't do that? You really think that? I just walked you out under the noses of the Egyptians. I saved you from all the plagues I, that I wrought upon them. I saved you from your firstborns dropping dead when the Passover angel went through, the death angel. And when Pharaoh pursued you, I destroyed him and his army in the Red Sea. You really think I can't do it? You really think I can't help you take the land that I'm giving you? Wow. But that's what they said. And henceforth, Joshua and Caleb were the only two who believed, had faith, and acted accordingly. They were the only ones that God spared, and they were the only ones to enter the promised land from that original group that were over the age of 20. In Exodus 16.3, we find that the people grumbled to Moses and saying that they sat around pots of meat in Egypt and were able to fill their bellies, but that God had now somehow led them out to be killed by starvation in the desert. That's what they said. They wanted to go back to slavery and sit around pots of meat, but they didn't have their freedom because they thought God couldn't feed them. Now, the Dewey Reams version of Scripture is a literal translation of the Bible, and it translates the Hebrew word for kill as destroy. Now, that's interesting because destroy is exactly what God said He was going to do to the people that turned from Him. And so God's anger burned so much against the Israelites for their lack of faith and belief in Him that He did exactly as they claimed He was doing. So in Numbers 1, we indicate that 603,550 people over 20 years old left Egypt. And if that's true, then 603,548 were destroyed. Wow. Now you're going to have some commentary to say it was 2.4 million. That doesn't add up. I, I can tell you why, but not today. So what's the point? Friends, this is what you have to understand. I want, you, I want you to write this down. You ready? God may destroy those He once saved. I know people think that isn't possible. I know they think it isn't true, but He did it. And He's going to do it again, too. Bob's clear about that as well. In fact, Paul made this point in writing the Corinthians. He relates the story of the Israelites in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 12, and he says that God was the destroyer, and He destroyed those that refused to believe in Him. The writer of Hebrews made the same point in Hebrews 3 and 4. The reason? Disobedience and lack of faith. That's why he did it. Put the scriptures together. Jude 5, 
God destroyed those who did not believe. Hebrews 3, they could not enter in because of disobedience and belief. Put them together. The Bible's the living word of God. It all goes together. None of it separates another. And you know what? It's perfect in its admonition. My friends, while the Bible does teach the security of the believer, people will say, are you saying that as a Wesleyan you believe in eternal security? I do. I do believe in it. I just think it's conditional upon my heart. I think if I remain faithful and true to God, that can never be snatched from me, can never be taken away from me, ever. But I can freely give it up, though. Okay? I can freely give it up. I can freely send myself away from it, can't I? Yes or no? Now, I know Baptists are going to say that's not true. Some of them will. But the Bible says otherwise. The Bible warning to all says, if you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, why would it be there if it weren't possible? This is a recurring theme in the New Testament. Remember what happened to Israel. And so having reminded his readers of the example of Israel shows a possibility of once saved, but now destroyed. Once saved, but now destroyed. That happened. And then he gives us the example that God has a place reserved for the wicked in the angels who sinned. So what happened? Well, the fact is, there's very little in the Scripture that tells us about it. Jude tells us that there were angels who did not keep their proper domain and who left their habitation. And Peter simply writes that there were angels that sinned. And I began to think, well, how do angels sin? I mean, how could they do it? And the fact is, there are two general beliefs out there as to how angels sin. One has to do with the rebellion against God by following Satan, right? I think probably nobody disputes that. I, I've never heard anybody dispute that following Satan as an angel would have, would have been a sinful practice. <laughs> yeah? It's a sinful practice for us, isn't it? Earth to few people out there today, isn't it? Hello? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> you know, that reminds me, when I, when I speak and someone answers, that's good, but when I talk to myself and someone answers, that's a problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> Listen, is it sinful to follow Satan? Would it be any different for the angels who did it? No, okay? So that's one of the belief systems, all right? But it could be more than that. And it has to do with Genesis 6 when some people interpret that after the angels fell and they became demons, you know, they sinned again by taking human women and procreating with them, which God had forbidden. Now, I dismiss this theory for a variety of reasons, even though I know that there's indication that the term sons of God has at times referred to angelic beings. I know that. I'm not disputing it. But in this case, I do not believe that's what it means. Because there's a huge sway in the words and interpretation of the meaning in the Hebrew text, which it would, in my mind, call into question the meaning of that phrase. It could be used for several different things. But more than that, there's biblical evidence that this couldn't happen anyway. Which means that the sons of God here would then refer to God followers and believers those men who were enticed and then pursued 
ungodly women, the daughters and women of foreign nations who were pagan worshipers, who were enticing and lewd with their drawing of the men. They dressed in a provocative manner in order to do that. And the Bible tells us that, in fact, that did happen, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Okay. So, in my opinion, that's what it means. And this makes much more sense based upon what Jesus said about procreation and angels who seem to be genderless and therefore would be unable to procreate anyway. And God also indicates that angels are, get this, created beings. Nowhere, anywhere do I find that angels had families and made more angels. Nowhere. Now, it could be God just didn't tell us, but Jesus said, in heaven, we will be like the angels who are basically genderless and do not marry. For marriage was based upon one thing, and that's procreation. And if the angels don't do it, probably it's because they can't. And he used angels as an example to the Israelites and to the disciples. So my opinion is, my humble opinion, that's what it means. Now, I know that others are going to claim that Jude brings verse 7 into play with their theory of an angelic human hybrid where Jude says the people of Sodom and Gomorrah went after strange flesh. But the fact of the matter is, as I research the Scripture and I look at it from the Old Testament all the way to the New, strange flesh is not what he meant by angelic procreation. Okay? That's not what he's saying. In fact, the Greek is pretty clear that sexual immorality was rampant in those cities and that the phrase interpreted strange flesh commonly refers to the homosexuality among the people, not an, an angelic tryst. You understand? Now, I know I'm going fast, and I know I'm giving you an awful lot about things that probably you've never even talked about before. But I want you to understand what I believe the Apostle Jude is trying to tell us and why it's important. But the fact is, what the angels did isn't the main focus here. You have to understand that. It's not the main focus. Jude makes it clear that condemnation is the big tamale, if you will. Condemnation is the problem. God has them, he says, in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. In fact, Peter says in 2 Peter 2.4 that God cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. That's pretty clear. Anybody? Okay? The word for hell is tartaro, and it's translated into English as Tartarus. Okay? And you're going to say to me, well, wait a minute. You said there's only, you know, a couple of terms for hell in Old New Testament, and you never said Tartarus. I said, no, because Tartarus is, is a descending order of Gehenna. Okay? From Hades. So, it's a reserved for judgment place that's a subheading of the words that are the total word for hell, if that makes sense. You understand what I'm saying? It's a subword. But it's a specific part of Hades or Gehenna. You understand? Okay, so that's what it means by that. And again, I'm giving you a lot, but you wanted me to do this on Jude, right, Julie? So I'm doing it. I think Jude is more suited for a Bible study where there's interaction than it is for, you know, a series in sermons, but I'm going to do the best I can with it so you understand. Now, Tartarus, 
was thought by the Greeks to be a subterranean place lower than Hades where divine torment and punishment was delivered by God. Many Jews began to think the same thing as well. And the Bible seems to indicate that that's true. Okay? Now, some translations say they were delivered into chains of darkness. The NIV translated, translates it gloomy dungeons. But the purpose was to be kept for judgment. You understand that? They're, they're being held in the abyss, yeah, for judgment day. Now, the Bible says they're going to be turned loose for a little while at the end of the millennial reign to wreak havoc upon the people that are here. Yes? How many of you knew that? Who didn't know it? Well, I just taught you that. It's in Revelation, okay? So that's going to happen. Now, as Jude puts it, they're being kept for the day of judgment on the great day. It's very similar to the scene that Jesus described in Luke 16, where the rich man, the wicked rich man, was in torment awaiting the day of judgment on the last day, while the poor but righteous man was carried unto Abraham's bosom. You remember that? Okay, if you haven't, read that. Jesus said it. Uh, Jude's telling us. Peter talks about it. I think we can take them at their word that this is going to happen. They're being held in a place that might be called Tartarus, that's definitely in Hades, and eventually will be Gehenna. You understand? That place is after judgment, Gehenna is, and that's the eternal hell. I don't think there's any doubt there's going to be a place like that. Again, there are Christians out there that say there is no such thing. The Mormon church says there's no such thing. The Bible says there is. Who do you believe? Just saying. What's the point? The fact is God is prepared to sentence everlasting judgment and punishment upon the wicked. He has the fallen angels in everlasting chains under darkness. For the ungodly people described later, he has reserved, get this, black darkness forever in Jude 13. Just as he had a place prepared for the angels who sinned, he also has a place prepared for the wicked and the unbelievers. Revelation 21.8, listen to this. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral... Those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, how do you interpret that any differently than what I just said? I don't know. But somebody somewhere out there is going to say, ah, that's not what it means. It says you or God is my response. Clearly, God has demonstrated that he is prepared to punish the wicked. But some people say God wouldn't do that. He's prepared to punish the unbelieving. People say, well, they're good people. God wouldn't do that. He is prepared to punish the sexually immoral. They're, they just love somebody. They can't help it. That's what they're saying. But what does God say? I'll tell you what he's going to say. Away from me, you will do her. I never knew you. That's what he's going to say. Jesus himself said that. Yes or no? Friends, there are Christians out there who will claim that God's grace covers everything. It doesn't. The truth is, He will destroy those who refuse to believe. He will destroy those who agree with or participate in these things that are emphasized. Sexual immorality, unbelief, vileness, murder, all those things go together. And He will destroy those who refuse to take a stand on it as well. 
Not my words. His. And if that didn't convince us, he's got one more example. Has to do with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened? Well, the judgment against these cities is vividly described in Genesis 19. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus, he overthrew those cities from the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. Did God destroy it? Did he destroy everything in it? Even the vegetation? Yes, he did. Now, these guys over here seem to believe me. I'm not sure this crowd ever does. Did God destroy it? Did he say he was going to destroy it? So God is a destructor, isn't he? Has been, will be again. So why this terrible judgment? The Lord said it was because their sin is very grievous. Genesis 18, 20. Jude says that they had given themselves over to sexual immorality. And they had gone after strange flesh. Some of you might have that in your scripture, strange flesh. Now, we see a sample of this in Genesis 19, 4 to 11. Listen to this story. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, every man from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Notice this, men calling out for other men. I mean, you, you can't dispute it because the word is man. Okay? Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can what? Have sex with them. It's, it's right there in Genesis. Look it up. Lot went outside to meet with them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. Because that was the natural order of things, male and female. Even though it was sinful in the manner outside of wedlock, it still was better than a homosexual thing. In Lot's mind. Why? Because the Word of God says so. All right? But he says, don't do anything to these men, for they have come under my protection of my roof. And they said this, get out of our way. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved toward forward to break down the door. Now, what was driving them to do that? Really? You want these guys, strange men, so badly, you're willing to batter down a door to get him? Really? Who's... who's Who's leading them? Who's guiding them? Who's, who's bewitched them? But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house, and they shut the door. And then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they couldn't find the door. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty rough day when two angels who were inside, and of course, the guys didn't know they were angels, but had to strike a, a mob of men blind because... 
they're so blinded spiritually that they can't see that what they're trying to do is wrong. Not only is it wrong, it's detestable, God says. So what's the point here? Both Peter and Jude make the point that Sodom and Gomorrah are an example. Peter says an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. 2 Peter 2.6. Jude says it's an example of those undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Jude 7. In other words, God has given us an example, my friends, of this eternal fire that's awaiting those who will be recipients of His righteous judgment and vengeance. I, I don't know after having heard that, you could doubt this is going to happen. And you know, that's only three. Again, remember, Peter talks about a fourth. And doesn't Paul talk about many others that are to come? Didn't John the Baptist himself said, repent and be baptized to escape it? He did. Now, friends, I know it might seem harsh that God would do these things. And I realize that most people see murder and terrorism and all sorts of other wrong and sinful things in a much worse light in a category than they do things such as homosexuality or other sexual sins or any other sin for that matter. But God does not give you and me or any human or any being for that matter the authority or ability to decide what's right or wrong. Neither does He allow us to decide what's reasonable and acceptable. We're doing it, mind you, but God doesn't allow it. So what you think is acceptable, what I think is acceptable, what we think is reasonable, God does not. What society tells you what other people, good friends of yours who are in a church somewhere, what they say, and it goes against Scripture, they think it's reasonable or unreasonable, and it deviates from Scripture, they don't get it either. None of us does. And it doesn't matter what your name is. It doesn't matter what church you attend. Friends, even big-name people in the Word of God, when they turned on God or did something outside of it, God took care of business with them. It didn't matter who they were. So when rock stars... And Hollywood stars start telling me what's right and morally wrong, I'm going to tell fooey on you. Peter and John before the Sanhedrin said, you tell us what we should do. Believe the words of man or the, before the living God? They were on trial. And they're trying to convince them to do something. They said, well, you tell, who should we, do, who should we listen to? You or God? And I, I believe that God's asking us through J uh, Peter and Jude the same thing. Who are you listening to? Are you listening to people? Or are you listening to God? And you better answer it because you're going to one day anyway. You're going to, because the question is going to be answered for you based on what you did or did not do. Now, you do believe that, right? I hope so because it's true. And friends, here's the thing. I also believe that some Christians can't believe that grace won't cover those things that they deem reasonable. I know that because they've told me that. Good friends of mine, sweet friends of mine, have said to me, I, but grace, but you're misunderstanding and misinterpreting what grace is. God says it's wrong and it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. 
And if it's wrong, he's going to bring punishment. And here's what I'm going to tell you. You heard it here. If, if you can go back and tell your friends and they're going to be mad at me, they're going to call me, that's fine. God will not forgive homosexual relationships, homosexual marriage, or any other detestable things that the Bible says stay away from. He won't forgive it until what? They turn from it. Then, yeah. But it might be too late. You saw the drive that these men had in Sodom. And you might say, well, it's not that bad here. Really? Really? What would cause someone to want it so badly that they're willing to go all out for it? Well, those who, Lucifer has a heart, a part of their heart. The Bible says he's blinding them. Those things will not be forgiven if there's not forgiveness for the disobedience. And if there isn't forgiveness for this disobedience, then how can grace be applied? Grace doesn't apply unless you've been forgiven. Friends, grace does not apply unless you've been forgiven, which means you had to have asked to be forgiven and, and turned away from it. Do you understand? You need to write that down if you don't know. Grace does not cover sinful activity. It covers what used to be sinful activity because you turn from it and no, no punishment. You're forgiven. Not only are you forgiven, there's no punishment for you. That's what grace is. He's forgiven the punishment. Forgiveness is the act. Grace is forgiving the punishment. Well, he can't forgive the punishment if you haven't asked for forgiveness first. And you can't ask for forgiveness if you're still doing it. Huh? Well, what about those things that we don't know are simple? Does grace cover that? Well, sure it does. Of course, you have that. Of course. What about those things I know are sinful, but I'm addicted to something and I can't help it? Well, God will determine whether it's an addiction or not. If you're truly addicted and God knows your heart and you're trying to change, I would say grace covers it. But not until then. See, grace is many faceted. Grace deletes the punishment, but it also gives you a period of time to, to fix it. Grace is amazing. That's why we call it amazing. But we've used it to do whatever we want. Because we are a self-centered culture and becoming more so every day. And I think that's what Jimmy was trying to say when he was up here this morning. He didn't know what I was preaching on today, but he's right. So here's my question. How can grace be applied to things where we don't ask for forgiveness and God knows our heart and we have no interest in changing? The fact is it can't, cannot. And this is exactly why Jesus told the Pharisees, and this is Jesus himself speaking. He told the Pharisees that because they were disobedient and didn't believe in him and his commands, that's what he said, John 8, 24, I told you you would die in your sins and you will indeed die in your sins. <laughs> Who said that? Who said that? Jesus did. So when people try to tell me, well, if Jesus didn't say it, I'm not going to believe it. Well, he said that. <laughs> and he was talking about the things that you're trying to make an excuse for. Friends, as our worship team comes forward, I have to tell you this. 
We may be like the original recipients of Jude's letter, well acquainted with these events. But Jude wanted us, he wanted to remind them. And we need to be reminded of these things as well. And what is it that we need to remember? Well, we have to remember that Israel is an example of those who were once saved and then destroyed by their lack of faith. Remember the angels who sinned as the example of those whose incarceration tells us God has a place prepared for the wicked, the unbelievers, and the sexually immoral. And we're to remember Sodom and Gomorrah as the example that God will not withhold the vengeance of eternal fire when the time is right. And it's only when we keep these things at the beginning and the forefront of our minds, when we're reminded of them constantly, that we'll take the warning seriously about those who will compromise the commands of God and lead us astray. Because we have good friends who are Christians that will try to do just that. They want us to believe the way they do. And I can't. No matter how much I want to, I can't. I wish it were the way they think. It isn't. And so take the warnings and instructions seriously. They're designed to keep us safe, preserved, and saved in Jesus Christ. And my question to you is, are you allowing these examples to serve their intended purpose? Will you let them motivate you to make whatever changes need to be made in your life? Are you motivated to stand earnestly for the faith as Jude commands that we should? Especially when certain people, including other Christians, compromise, water down, misinterpret, and completely misteach the Word of God. Because, friends, the judgment of the great day draws nearer and nearer. And I'll tell you, it's time to get serious, and it's time to get busy. Stand with me today.